Hello and welcome to the Veer Vulnerabilis Veer podcast. I'm Adam Glinsky. And I'm Albert Imperato. Where we help men communicate and build empathy. Here we are again, Albert. It's a early Sunday morning for all of us here and some of us have our coffee, but uh, <laughs> we're here post um, 4th of July and um, I think we all kind of have a lot of mixed feelings right now. I know I sure do. Um, there was, you know, proud to be American. There was also all of the healing that we need to take a look at. But how was uh, the Hudson Valley up there? Mine, mine ended early. I didn't even see any fireworks. You know, I was putting the baby down. Um, yeah, I saw your, I saw your post uh, this morning, mm-hmm. and I could see that you were, you were just giving the message of positivity, healing, and uh, I really, I think you've really found your, found your groove uh, <laughs> with your positivity message. It's, it's been coming through beautifully. Adam, uh, it's really funny. I often have these weird moments um, where history is becomes very present uh, to me because I'm constantly reading old books and, and studying American history. And just by chance, I'm reading a book, a, a biography of Walt Whitman right now. And it turns out right in my um, the biography I'm reading right there on July 4th, um, I get to uh, 1850. Uh, roughly 1850. And Whitman has been kind of percolating. He's been traveling. He's been taking it in and sort of getting very turned on by life in America. The idea that this was this incredibly bustling country. He saw industry. He saw diversity. He saw um, just incredible variety of teeming activity around the country. And he was just beginning to find his full poetic voice before he uh, wrote uh, "Song of Myself" and "The Leaves of Grass," which became, you know, the big breakthrough. So he's he's writing, and I'm I'm reading, reaching the point in the biography where he's ready to write his masterpiece. Just as my focus of my post was Frederick Douglass's uh, 1852, same exact time, 1852. Um, what to the slave does July Fourth mean? And uh, it was wild and incredible on July 4th to have those things coalesce because um, on the same day NPR had put out a, a video of the descendants, four descendants of Frederick Douglass reading, uh, reading that speech, that famous speech. And it was, just, it was just incredible to just feel the energies of those two great written uh, uh, works um, and see the different place, the, 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 the poet, this, you know, white, you know, probably gay. They probably, you know, you know, they they really haven't fully gotten a handle on all this. Um, poet who's just so excited about the future, and then you have uh, Frederick Douglass having to say, "There's all this incredible possibility, but my God, can we not see that slavery is is just something we cannot live with any longer? This has to stop." And it was a very powerful moment to to share those two moments together. But what was really even more, in a way, more powerful was I, rereading the speech. Was that the lack of bitterness really in Frederick Douglass's words? He's angry as well. Yeah, you know, I don't want to say the word, but he was angry. But he still takes the moment to say the founding fathers are geniuses and that the words are genius. And he basically says there's nothing wrong with these words. It's, it's, it's their execution. It's how they're, we, we are hypocrites. We are not living up to these words. And to me, for any human being who, I mean, he was born a slave. He escaped from slavery. Um, 
for any human being to uh, to still have anything positive to say, and then to know that later he becomes a great, just an incredible patriot. Uh, it to me that is just like the the sign of just some sort of uh, spiritual high point, some kind of plane that certain people could uh, exist in of being able to, 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 to feel something positive about humanity amidst like the most obvious inhumanity. So I just was, it was a very quietly powerful, you know, I was kind of sitting on my lounge quietly reading it and anyone would have thought it was kind of a boring day, but it was kind of anything but. Yeah, totally. Um, my biggest takeaway from what you said is during that whirlwind of anger, just, you know, total rage of what's going on, um, the class and the poise and just the articulation of the argument um, and just saying, hey, like, I see what you're coming from, but this is my presentation to it. And I think the the art of the argument, probably not for this podcast, but maybe for another one, um, the art of the argument has, uh, you know, very much waned in this country where it's like very just scream at each other until, you know, one of them gives up. Whereas, you know, prior to this and the more classical argument way is, hey, like, let's sit down, let's actually have a, a long conversation about this and let's work together to find a resolution or, you know, go our separate ways. And that is not something we see in today's politics or today's society. So yeah, you I just think, think back in to- history, the Lincoln Douglas debates, you just, I mean, the whole debating, the whole mm-hmm tradition of debating and you're right i think you're absolutely right and actually i've been getting quite a lot of messages of uh gratefulness actually from some followers saying you know thank you for commenting on my post that have more of a, of a political uh, uh slant to them um i i find myself just needing to speak up more because when you know in general i avoid politics in in, in on instagram but I think now we can't avoid it. We don't have that luxury. And there, you know, there are times where we just have to just say something is wrong. You, your facts are wrong. I, uh, your opinion is destructive. Uh, your attitude is whatever you want to call it. But uh, it's, 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 it's a time for speaking up. So anyway, I, we have, we have a, a really special guest today. Um, it's related a little bit to what we've been discussing. But I think it would be great to bring, bring in our guests and, and get the conversation going. Absolutely. So let me give him the official intro. So our guest today is Alvin G. Nelson III. Uh, He goes by Trey. Trey is an alumnus of Baylor University class of 2020, earning a BA in film and digital media with a minor in corporate communication. Throughout college, he has worked as a producer and first assistant director on numerous projects in Central Texas, one of which won gold at the World Fest Houston International Film Festival. Trey has been recently commissioned as a second lieutenant in the United States Air Force, and he will be moving to Arizona in the fall to serve as a public affairs officer. Trey, thank you so much for coming on the show today. Welcome. Thanks for having me on, guys. I'm happy to be here. And you're you're down in uh, in Waco, no, Austin, Texas. You're visiting your parents, right? Yes, I'm visiting my parents right now because my car is uh, living up to her name right now. So, and that name is. Her name is Mary Todd, named after Mary Todd Lincoln. It's a 97 Lincoln Town car. Um, and, you know, if we know anything about Mary Todd Lincoln, she was a little, she was a little off a rocker, a little, you know, had some issues going on. And my car is living up to her name as, as we speak. So that's a hilarious name. Uh, yeah, it's, it's very fitting. 
very fitting. You're mentioning Mary Todd Lincoln. Uh, are you a big avid uh, history buff? Do you read a lot of history? Uh, not necessarily. Um, and I know if my sister listens to that, she'll be mad because my sister has a um, Bachelor of Arts in history um, from the same university I went to. Um, I'm Knowing your history is important. So I know a lot about history, but it's not my go-to subject of choice. But it's very important, I think. I'm I'm an American studies major, uh, I which I nice. chose because I didn't know what to major in, and it just was like sort of a little bit of everything. But yeah, uh, now I it, I feel like it is absolutely perfect in the moment that we're in. That I had that I read so many books back. You know, we're talking college for me thirty-five years ago or something like that. Yeah. Uh, and now I'm like. I'm so glad I read all of that material and have absolutely have that to draw from when I'm talking to people. Um, we, I, I want to. I told Adam I want to tell everybody who's listening how um, why we invited you on, and it, it's really really simple. Um, in scrolling about, I came upon a a post from you, uh, which um, I would say was. Uh, probably the most powerful post that I read in the wake of, um, of recent, uh, uh events, uh, the protests, the response to the protests and your, uh, your post basically laid out, I thought the most, uh, crisp, crisply articulated, uh, uh, summary of where we're at as, uh, in terms of race in America. Uh, you just, you know, without characterizing it, if you don't mind, we'll put you on the spot here. I'm going to just ask you if you wouldn't mind reading, reading the post that you did on um, June 2nd. Yeah, sure. So if we remember, June 2nd was Blackout Tuesday. Um, so all I'd seen all day were just a bunch of black squares on Instagram. So here's what I said. At the end of the day, your black squares mean nothing to me because they aren't going to save my life. Want to know why? Racism doesn't care. Racism doesn't care that I'm a pastor's kid, that I'm a black belt, that I'm an Eagle Scout, that I failed pre-calculus in high school, that I made the Dean's List twice at Baylor, that I really love Disney World, that I really hate mashed potatoes, that I'm in the Air Force, that I'm insert literally anything here. There's nothing I can do to qualify myself to not be a victim of a racist attack. Nothing. All your black boxes without captions don't help unless you're willing to act. I don't get out. I don't get a get out of racism free card as a black man. So don't think your black boxes will make me think you care. If you care, act. I'm so over fake activism. Change your ways. And that's that post. Yeah, I mean, there's a lot there. Um, what was kind of like the the feelings behind it and the emotions behind it, like as you were typing it out? Well, for, for one thing that day, um, that day blackout Tuesday was an Instagram trend. I felt like it was so meaningless. It was, um, it started out as intentions behind it were good, but as more and more people caught on, I just realized that this isn't actually helping because there's plenty of people who can get away with posting a trend on Instagram and not doing anything behind the scenes to support it. And I'm guilty when, oh, a million years ago, it seems like the ALS ice bucket challenge. I did an ice bucket challenge video. I had no idea what ALS was. 
Um, so I feel like social media in that way is kind of dangerous because anyone can post a black square on Instagram um, to get the haters off their back and not actually do anything to understand why, why people are trying to post a black square on Instagram. Um, so that was just a, just a snippet of why I posted that day in particular, but there was, there was a lot leading up to that. Is there any reason why you selected like some of those, like, I mean, mashed potatoes, yeah. black belt, you know, or is it just kind yeah. of like a, Hey, like I, I'm a very like diverse person. I have my likes, I have my dislikes. Like what, what was the kind of the meaning behind that? Well, I wanted to talk about a lot of the followers I've gotten on Instagram have been since I've been at college and, you know, I don't know a thousand, there's a, a thousand people on my Instagram. All of them don't know me very well. Um, you know, I have a close group of friends, other acquaintances, family members, but I wanted to list the things that not a lot of people knew about me, um, that are, you know, personal, like I really, really love Disney world. Like, no, you have no idea. I love Disney world. Um, and I'm a black belt. That's not something I advertise. Um, but I'm a third degree black belt in Taekwondo. Um, and not a lot of people knew that when I got to college. So it's like, you're learning more things about me as you read this post, but it's also getting into the back of your mind that none of the things that I've earned, none of the accolades, the way I was raised, it doesn't matter when racism only looks at my skin. So that was, that was the reason why I picked the things I did. I have to say, um, you know, the tone and the way you argued your point was kind of genius and it was it actually was reminiscent a little of frederick Douglass. it has uh you know uh the phrase Jer jeremiah it comes across it's kind of like at the very end you say uh you basically tell people right to their faces change your ways that mm -hmm. was a very that was a very uh uh frederick Douglass kind of approach was kind of like to in it evoke a little bit of a biblical thing to sort of say, you know, woe unto ye who, who don't do the work, the, the, the way, pr pursue the ways of the Lord and of, of it was like, targeted. Yeah. Yeah. Tell, tell me a little bit. You, you mentioned in this, in this uh, list of your attributes, uh, you're a pastor's kid. So your I dad, am. your dad is a pastor. Both of my parents, both of your parents, both of my parents. Yeah. And I grew up, um, I, I really love my family because we have just this unshakable bond between us. Um, so my mom is constantly encouraging me with scripture. Um, and my dad too, I can't say that it's just one of them. Um, but my parents always, you know, bless me. Um, we worship on Saturdays. Um, and my parents are always uh, praying for me. It's so nice to know that I have parents who pray for me for my safety and for my well-being. Um, and really what that's got, what that's done for me, because that could have gone sideways. I, I joke with a lot of people. I wasn't, I wasn't just a pastor's kid, but I was also a homeschooler. I've never been to public school a day in my life. So I could have turned out like a creepy homeschooler and I could have turned out like a crazy pastor's kid who, you know, like once they leave the house, they go crazy because they haven't been allowed to do anything. Um, and my parents have just done an amazing job with how they homeschooled and integrated the Bible with our, with our schooling so that I've got a pretty well-rounded knowledge of 
you know, the world from a biblical point of view, but I can also understand it from, you know, other points of view. And um, I feel like that's something that's really lacking nowadays. Everybody's so, um, so close-minded. Um, and I experienced something this past semester that really made me, you know, took me out of my comfort zone, um, forced me to, you know, feel a little uncomfortable in a situation. In my cross-cultural communication class, we had to study a different cultural group. Um, so originally we were going to try and do uh, the elite, like rich people. Um, but we couldn't find an organization to support us. So we chose Muslims and, you know, coming from my background, I was very apprehensive, you know, like, I don't know what this is all about. I'm kind of nervous, you know, to go here, but we had to watch a film. We, we had to do three separate projects where we watched the film, attended a service, and then attended some sort of cultural event put on by that culture. Um, and I had a great talk with the, um, he wasn't like the priest, the leader of the congregation, but there, I went to an Islamic service in Waco, um, and realized how similar many of the things are to my own faith. Uh, the message that was preached would not be that unlike something heard in church. Um, and just the, you know, fundamental core beliefs differ, but I had a great conversation with that leader and we talked about. You know, how do Muslims perceive their faith in America? And he was telling me about how um, they really come to a crisis. American Muslims in particular have to choose whether they're going to stick with their faith or, you know, just leave the faith altogether because of the American situation that we're in regarding Muslims, basically how they're perceived. Um, so, yeah, I give mad props to my parents for the way they raised me and my biblical worldview that is able to support other points of view. Just curious about that a little bit, um, kind of going, going off into a little rabbit hole there, but I was, you said like you had uh, some, yeah, um, <clears throat> like a, a good worldview on that as, you know, I was raised Jewish, you know, the Torah, all that studies. Mm -hmm. um, now, did your parents kind of give you a very like, Hey, whatever this says is a hundred percent true, or was were these like stories to tell, you know, to teach you something else? Like, um, I'm just curious if it's like, hey, this happened as like this is a history book, or, I mean, I, this is just you know me and Christianity, just a little curious, um, and you probably have a, a yeah, much yeah better insight for it. Well, what's interesting is that um, my parents have actually they've been on this journey of discovering Hebraic roots of the Bible. Um, so for a while we were doing Jewish things, if that makes any sense. So um, we stopped celebrating Christmas for a lot of reasons. Um, but uh, we started celebrating Passover and the Hebraic Feast of the Bible, Sukkot, um, Feast of Tabernacles, all that stuff. Um, and the way it was taught to me as a kid is that your faith is your own. We are not, I'm not going to be able to, you know, go to heaven based on my parents' belief. It has to be for myself. So they were very much like, this is for you to decide if you want, you know, to believe or not. And obviously I do. Um, but growing up in school, we definitely, you know, read the Bible, um, read the Bible stories, did the, you know, little study guides and, you know, went to VBS, all that, all that stuff. But it was not only just history, but it was fundamental core faith belief that was taught to me as a kid by my parents. 
Right on, man. That's that's a really interesting um, viewpoint on there. Uh, you mentioned Sukkot, and um, that's actually one of my favorite holidays, um, even though it's probably the, the least enjoyable. Did you actually um, sit Sukkah like outside? We did that for one. Uh, yes and no. I feel yes, like we tried a bunch of times. Yeah. <laughs> um, it's it's the way we celebrated has changed over the years. Because um, sure. I've been to. Uh, my dad was learning under a rabbi for some time. Um, and so I've been to like a traditional Jewish Passover Seder. Mm-hmm. Um, so I've done that. Uh, we tried to build a sukkah on the back porch and it mm-hmm. fell over. Um, <laughs> and I think they, you know, you do what you can, you do what you can Absolutely, to try. Yeah. And then I've been at school. Um, mm-hmm. I can't build a sukkah in my dorm. I'm not going to, yeah. no, I'm not going to do that. Uh, so, you know, you celebrate in the ways you can. To the folks at home, could you just give us just a very thumbnail sketch of? Yeah, exactly. I was about to do that. So, oh, um, uh, yeah, go for it. <laughs> yeah, Asuka is basically whenever, um, like the Semites were going out of Israel, they made little makeshift camps, um, and these tiny, like little, very just like shelters, honestly. So, yeah, um, the holiday Sukkot is you build a sukkah outside of your home and you live very, very meanly. I mean, just like in a small little establishment. Um, for a week and you know you try to sit out there most people celebrate it one night because it's you know you're like mm-hmm. really roughing it um, but it's more like for Passover for Sukkot it's a very big remembrance holiday yes of, remember remember the times when we struggled so hard remember the times when we had to live off the land um, remember the times when we did not have a you know a real home to live in um, so for me, like th- those are my favorite aspects of Judaism um, is, hey, re- remember when we didn't have it so good because. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> like th- we can get very inflated nowadays, but there's there's some holidays that bring us back down to earth. And that's no, what that, I truly appreciate. Yeah. That's uh, uh, amazing. And, uh, you know, it seems like every single culture should have some variation on that ritual because we do get rather, rather overcomfortable in, with our circumstances if anything, maybe maybe now, especially with with all of us under siege by this this pandemic uh, yeah. environment that we're in, that maybe we'll have a little bit greater perspective as a culture here in America down the road, where we could look back and say, "Hey, we can't take being able to get together for granted. We can't. Uh, we could learn and appreciate just how lucky we were all along, and 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 lucky that we've moved to the beyond it." Uh, God willing, and hopefully sooner rather than later. Um, yes. I want to go back. Uh, first of all, I feel like we could talk just about religion the entire time. And I, I would love to meet your parents because I, I do love the idea of, of the Bible as a, a freeing document, mm-hmm. as, as in one that opens us up to other people. Unfortunately, uh, the, the Bible has been terribly weaponized. And a lot of people who who profess to being you know, believers and followers of biblical teaching are sometimes the most intolerant people. And that's, that's kind of a tragedy, but I want to go back to you being a homeschooled kid. Yeah. Obviously parents who have really uh, get given you quite a lot of background, quite a lot of uh, uh, different information. You go to Baylor and this is really your first time in a school environment. I mean, as a, as an adult. No. So in high school, the Austin Community College, they have a program that allows high schoolers to attend dual credit classes. So they count for high school and they count for college credit. Um, so I really did that for most of high school. I was not at home most of the time because I was at the community college. Um, so I transferred in 
30, 30, 30-ish credits to Baylor. So I'd already experienced college. I'd already experienced being around other people that I didn't know. Um, and additionally, homeschooling at a lot of places, there's what you call homeschool co-ops, where you can go and the kids, they're taught by, you know, real teachers, um, certain subjects that they take outside of the class, and then they go home, do the homework, and then go back for one day. So I got a lot of different um, social experience. I was also in like a million extracurricular activities. So I knew how to be around. I knew how to be around other people when I got to Baylor, but I also knew how to fend for myself and, you know, actually do the work for school. Got it. So it wasn't like this massive culture shock suddenly being in school. Oh, no, not no, not at all. I was I was very excited to be here. And you you uh, mentioned that you were in the ROTC program at Baylor. I was. Yes. And your, your parents are both pastors. One or both of them are in the military. My dad was um, he retired from the Air Force um, uh, not long after I was born. Um, I was born in Japan. Uh, so he retired and then we moved to Austin. So we always joking kid, my older two sisters, they got the military brat experience and me and my younger sister, we got the American civilian life, um, experience. Oh, um, can we go back? I, I want to go back yeah. to, the, to the post when you and I had our little pre-interview. Yes. Um, we, we went through the, um, through the post, uh, and and you said you were very very frustrated by what happened on on Black Tuesday with the squares. You actually said to me that you were red hot mad. I did. And, I, I was. <laughs> uh, so clearly, you were mad that there was a lot of maybe hypocrisy, maybe all kinds of issues about how social media and trending and etc. But was some of the anger a personal anger based on? racist uh, attitudes and and issues that you've confronted um, yourself and and w w tell us a little bit about your history dealing uh, in, in, in your personal history and your your experience with the issue of racism in America yeah so I I grew up um, obviously I was homeschooled so my parents could you know decide you know, what, what curriculum should we focus on? And I got a very well-rounded view of history, but that also included black history. So I was exposed to, I saw the whole series of roots, um, the old 1970s show. Um, I was like 12 when we watched that. Um, yeah, I watched so that I, real time. That was a, a major yeah. moment in American his history. It was incredible. It's a very important show. And I feel like everyone that needs to be, made available on streaming services because um, you just learn so much about the true history of obviously it's an adaptation of someone's personal story, but I grew up being aware of racism. Um, so my own personal experience with racism hasn't always been of the systemic variety. Um, and I feel like that's something a lot of people should know that not all black people experience racism in the same way um the black community is not a monolith it's not just oh you're black so automatically you've done xyz grew up in the hood and you know have been exposed to drugs like not everyone has been like that people let's get that straight um so my experience with racism has been the nice kind um the covert uh just hide it under the surface racism um i can remember 
I was the only, I was the only black kid in the science group here in Austin, Austin area homeschoolers. They have like little science teams that compete, um, at the science Olympiad and science bowl. Um, I was very into science and that sort of thing when I was a kid. Um, but even after I had won two medals for the team, I was dismissed with no explanation. And I remember a woman at the co-op that I went to coming up to me after, after I was just kicked off the team with no explanation. Um, I can't remember exactly what she said, but she said something to the effect of sorry about them. I'm not like them. And I was like, Oh, I don't really understand what that means. Like, what would you mean then? Did they just not like me? Was I you know, too annoying? I was, you know, very rambunctious as a kid. Um, so that was the first thing that got me, you know, really thinking. And then stuff happened in the neighborhood with the, you know, kids I'd play around with. Um, I feel like they had been exposed to the N-word by their older siblings or at school or something. Um, and they wanted to call it, call me one. Um, so I went inside and my dad was like, you're not yourself. What's going on? And I told him and he went outside to find the kids and they ran. Um, so my experience with racism, even recently, um, I worked at Magnolia in Waco. Uh, Magnolia is a big market place. Um, if you know who Chip and Joanna Gaines are, um, it's their little complex. Uh, they're on HDTV fixer up or whatever. Um, I worked at a food truck there and a woman came up, ordered her foot, or ordered her uh, foot long hot dog, the Nathan's. Um, and she went off to go eat it, a middle-aged white woman. And she came back and said, that was a great hot dog, Dwayne. And I thought I misheard her. I, we don't wear name tags. We're in a food truck. You know, my name's not on the receipt. So I thought I misheard her told her, Oh, you know, that sounds great. And, you know, glad you liked it. Ha, ha ha. And she said, I don't know what your name is, but Dwayne works. And I was too flabbergasted to even respond. Um, and I had to tell my parents, like, I don't know if this was racism or not, because I'm not just, this is just me. This is just Trey. I'm not always going to assume that any bad thing that happens to me is because of racism. Um, but in that case, it was the subliminal, it was the slight, you know, dehumanization. You don't even want to ask me my own name. You're just going to give me some stereotypical sounding one because it makes you feel like a good person. And she was very like, she didn't see anything wrong with it. Um, so my experience with racism is, you know, obviously different than everyone has their own personal experience with it. But um, it's really um so you didn't respond to this woman in real time you didn't say something to her. no i bet, I bet no. adam could come I, up with a, a good response to uh, what i she was said to you. <laughs> i was stunned i was stunned i was like yeah there's shock you know what that to happens. say to like, you it's actual shock yeah yeah and what did your parents say i'm just curious what was what your parents said to you mm -hmm. after you told that story um my mom um she said something about I can't remember exactly what it is, but something about Pullman porters and they used to always call them Joe. Like the, I think those are like elevator operators. Um, Cause they would have, you know, elevator operators back in the day to press the button for you. But all the white people would just call the black people, Joe, 
like just give them a stereotypical name um, that if you don't know someone's name, like that's, that's a huge part of their identity that you're just willing to overlook. Um, and so she said, it's that, that's what that sounded like. She just gave you a name that sounded good and it didn't matter because you were in a food truck giving her a hot dog. Yeah. I don't think, uh, the word, uh, Karen was popularized then, but <laughs> it was not, this was like two years ago. It was yeah. absolute 100% Karen incident. Yep. <laughs> but, Absolutely. Um, I, I, I do want to actually um, ask you another thing about the post. Um, and this is kind of on the, the other side of racism is that you don't get a get out of racism free card. So I kind of want to mm-hmm. ask, um, you know, on the other side, you know, what, what types of, you know, in, in the black community racism you do see um, and what, I mean, it's, it's not reverse racism, but it's just racism from a different side. Um, so have you experienced like racism within the black community or, um, otherwise that, that kind of made you write that too? I have very interesting that you asked that, um, because I have not always been, I've, I've been, you know, say you sound white, um, uh, you don't, you don't act black enough. Um, I've gotten that at college. Um, and it's very, you know, hurtful. That's something that the black community, we have to, you know, discuss and come to terms with. Um, my older sister has been speaking out about that a lot. Um, her treatment within the black community, especially since um, comparatively, uh, she's more light skinned. Um, and there's a lot of, you know, colorism and that sort of talk within the black community. Um, so not outright racism. I mean, if it is racism, yeah. Um, but I've gotten those tokenist, like, oh, you're just, you know, you're, you're not, you're an Oreo. Uh, you're not black. You're not that black that I've, I've gotten a lot of that over the past four years. Yeah. I've noticed, um, within the black community at work, it's like the different coloration grade is like how light or how dark you are. And, mm-hmm. uh, my Ghanaian friend is like definitely the, the darkest one out of all of them. And, you know, like the more, you know, American ones are just like, oh yeah, he's, he's so dark. Like he's purple, you know, stuff like that. And it's like, uh-huh. he's like, he's too black. And I'm just like, oh, I, and like, that was kind of like a, a jaw drop for me is that I was like, whoa, like, <laughs> um, that's, that's interesting. And then also like towards other communities, like more, more slurs and more things happen. And it's like, mm-hmm. um, kind of a, a weird potentially ignorant question but uh, i just want to ask yeah. it anyway do you think the the use of the the n-word allows other slurs to be more okay within the black community or is it just you know you know if, if one then all or is this one different for black have... for black people calling other people slurs correct oh, yes. well I, I got you um well i don't use the n-word um and I correct people who do, even if they are, you know, singing a song or whatever. There's there's a lot of discussion about whether that's a word that should be used or not, especially since what's happened is that black people, from my understanding, black people have reclaimed the word to use as their own. This was traditionally a term of, you know, ridicule and slander um, and really dehumanization. And black people have, you know, turned it, flipped it on its head and used it for their own. Um, 
I still don't think it's okay for other slurs to be used against other people. Um, I don't know what my opinion of the N word is within the, within the black community. Um, but I've, I've definitely had, you know, white friends. Hey, can I get, what is it? What do they call it? I don't remember, but I've gotten white friends asking me, can I, can I use the N word? Can I just say it once, you know, just to get it off my chest? I'm like, no, yeah. no, no. It's, it's like, why do you want to say it so bad? If, if you realize the power and the intention behind that word, you wouldn't want to use it, but why do you still think they want to say it? Why do you think they want to? Is it like a kid? Like when you tell a kid, don't stick the screwdriver in the, yeah. in the electric socket. Is it just childish stupidity or is there something, something darker and worse going on there? What, what is your feeling on why people are asking you that? In my experience, I don't think it's, I don't think it's that dark. But I feel like there's a lot of immaturity that has a lot to do with it. You know, everyone wants to do what they're not supposed to do. Everyone wants to, you know, you know, go wild and crazy and get in trouble. And um, I think it's just a, just like saying, you know, your man part, you know, he's trying to say it as quietly, but as loudly as you can. So other people can hear you. And, you know, back when you were a kid, that sort of thing. I think it's that on a grander scale that same that same wanting that same need to do something that's you know oh this is a little it's a little risky it's a little dangerous you might get in trouble for this but they'll still try it anyway have you had a lot of friends particularly white friends uh asking you and being very direct with you uh asking you to guide them and tell you what they should do what's their the best action they can take and if if so what do you tell them Yes. <laughs> uh, so, so that, that requires a little bit of explanation. Um, so the post after, after I posted that, um, that was my, the post that I read today. That wasn't even the post that really got people talking um, because I went to a protest the Sunday prior um, and I had a sign that said, I don't want to be a hashtag. Um, and it had, Hashtag Philando Castile, Tamir Rice, Ahmaud Arbery, George Floyd, Breonna Taylor, Tatiana Jefferson. Like, I don't want to be a hashtag. I don't want you to care about me after I'm already gone. Um, and that's what got a lot of people in my DMs asking, wow, this is like really powerful. What can I do about this? And luckily, there's been a lot of um, really good resources on Instagram that I've been putting them on my story. One of my favorites is... Um, I actually wrote it down because I wanted to get it right. At Muriel Charper, she has um, a post on 10 steps to non-optical allyship. And I shared it because I was irritated with the black squares. I was irritated with people coming in my DMs. What should I do? Like, how can I solve this problem? I The, next, the day after I posted that on Instagram, I woke up even madder because... So you just don't know that racism still exists. Like what have you studied in history that makes you believe that it doesn't exist anymore. And it took talking with my family to realize like the American education system just doesn't really cover racial topics in, in detail. So I put on my story, I shared a bunch of resources, but then I put, you know, another really targeted, really biting post. If you follow me, you, either have a college degree or actively pursuing one. 
So you can do some research. You can educate yourself. Um, and so that's what I've been trying to do. Encourage people to do research on your own. Stop asking me. If you want to talk to me, that's fine. But asking me what you should do to solve the problem of racism, I'm gonna I'm going to look at you side eyed and say, you know, you have Google, you have access to this mountain of knowledge. If you're not willing to tap into that, but you want to just ask me, that's that's not cool. Could you uh, say the name again of the the? Uh... Yeah, um, at Muriel Sharper. Um, it's spelled kind of funny but actually if you don't mind you could just dm me the uh the profile and we'll put it yeah. in our feed yeah um, it's one of my favorite posts 10 steps to non-optical allyship yeah i think i think that would be a really really important one uh to share uh we uh i think i told you in the pre-interview that one a friend of mine was very critical that adam and i had an interview with um a dancer uh previous guest who has been very involved. He, he's white. He's been very involved in, in um, social justice causes. And we invited him on the, on the show just because we like him and he's a very articulate, uh, eloquent person. And, and, and another friend of mine was very, very critical and said how, how it was cringy is the word he used. He said mm-hmm. it was cringeworthy or cringy that we would talk to, that, that we had three white dudes talking about, about uh, racism. And I, I brought this to your attention and I'm just wondering if you would just give your take. I mean, the, our motivation was, was pretty, uh, you know, I, I know what our motivation is, but I'm just curious if you, uh, you know, if you have a, a, a thought on the topic. No, I think it's totally needed. Um, and the one, I listened to that podcast and I was, I was working, but the one thing that really stuck out to me was when he asked y'all to define what you think racism is in your own words, and you both came up with, you know, fundamentally the same, but like there is tiny differences there here and there. And I think that's important to actually define what racism is so that you can talk about then how you're going to solve it. Because um, especially, you know, in the white community, I don't know what it's like. I don't know what it's like to grow up and not know, not ever experience racism or not know what racism is or how it affects me. I don't know what it's like to live that life. Um, that's exactly what I told a white friend of mine um, when we had a conversation that he had never had a conversation about race with his family, with his friends. He had never talked about it. Um, and that is something that absolutely needs to change. Everyone in their own communities and together, you need to talk about how you can affect the circles you're in. Also, like when you're saying that you're getting asked to like solve the problem, it's not your problem. It's kind of uh, it's kind of our problem, and we need to uh, we need to own up and and fix it. And you know, one of our conversations is just like, you know, just like you said, probably the most eye opening thing for Albert and I on that on that podcast was the definition of racism because it was mm-hmm. just so vastly different, and white people aren't on the same page straight up. Like they're just, they're not like everyone sees it in a different way. And we need to kind of collectively, you know, get, get a good definition or at least be on the same page when we're talking about it. So for me, that's definitely changed the way I, I continue my conversations about it is saying like, Hey, like, how are we defining this? How are we talking about this? 
like in what Absolutely. context. So for me, I mean, just like you said, that was that was huge. And you know, as white people, we need to own this. Absolutely. Like this isn't your problem. This isn't, you know, Trey's way to to fix it. It's kind of a, you know, you can give us a thumbs up or thumbs down, like good, bad, but you know, there's you shouldn't, you're not the guide in this in this spot. So when I talk about the guide, like for for white people, like what you know versus like allyship and not to say like you know what's the guide but like what's mm-hmm. your kind of take on this new um you know allyship and just like the the process and programming behind it is it something you find valuable or is it something that is more like hey white people are doing this just to feel good i think it, it's very nuanced in the way that it can go because I spoke to someone this week who has been practically disowned by his family because he's so adamant about racism being wrong. And his parents, his dad is a cop um, and he's been disowned by his family. So, you know, that doesn't sound very good. Um, I, I want people to, like I just said a few seconds ago, it's about affecting the circles you're in. If there aren't any, if there aren't any people of color in your circles, but you want to speak up for them, speak on behalf of them, reach out, try to bring those people into your circles. Because I, I didn't realize how many people were going to be affected by what I said on Instagram. I just didn't know. That was a personal post made public. I was not ready for the amount of, you know, you know, outcry and not, not in a bad way, but support. I was not ready for the amount of support I got. Um, and I feel that that can happen for everyone. If you just seek to affect the circles that you're in by speaking up about racism, by calling out racist ideas, ideologies, that sort of thing, um, you can affect change. So in that way, I think allyship is important. Posting on social media is, is while it's a good way to show allyship, there needs to be action behind it. There needs to be conversations behind the scenes. There needs to be changed behavior. I'm not going to say those things anymore. I'm not going to automatically assume certain things about certain people. Um, there has to be action behind it. But in that way, just affect the circles you're in. That's how we can really, really stand together and make change. Beautifully said, Trey. Thank you, man. I appreciate that. Yeah, I mean, that. that what I love so much about that is that if everybody's circle is impacted, all of those circles come together and make a, a pretty fast change, actually. It, it, and, and I do, and I, I use the analogy of the, the change in American attitudes about gay marriage. It went from absolutely minor support, very small number, percentage of the American public was into, into the idea and positive about it. And then a tipping point was reached. And now on the other side of it, everybody exhaled and said, the world did not end. Gay people got married and the world did not end. And that is exactly what I'm hoping is happening at this historic moment um, in our culture, that people will realize the world is not going to end if all of us are equal. Uh, actually, it may be the beginning. It, America is walking around, uh, first of all, like a, a, a child that doesn't want to grow up, an adolescent that just doesn't want to grow up. Um, and, and, you know, 
I also think we're damaged. You know, this is something that James Baldwin got uh, got to the idea that both uh, black people and white people were damaged by racism. That the hate the hater is as damaged by the hate as the subject of the hate um, in, uh, in some ways because hate is a terribly corrosive emotion, and uh, th- we need to get to that place in America where we realize that the danger and and is not getting rid of racism because it is destroying us. And, um, you know, we're, it's kind of like the solution is so simple, but all we have to do is grow up and take the step. We have all the evidence. The evidence is in. Every single evidence about what the cost of racism in our society is in. And, and now we just have to, to make the change. And, you know, my, I guess my one of the things that I've kind of seen about myself, I'm a real hearts and minds kind of person. I believe if you change people's feelings and their thinking that a lot of a lot of things will will come from that. Um, you know, so other people are more activist oriented and doing more protesting, doing more, uh, you know, go, go calling, getting involved with uh, organizations. Um, but clearly, all of us have to have skin in the game. All of us have to. Um, like you say, that's what I love about what you said, the idea of affecting the circle that you're in, uh, so that people feel empowered, that this is not some monumental task that can't be done. Right. It, it can be done. I, I think that comes from, uh, you know, my experience in ROTC. I haven't had any actual military experience yet, but the way the Air Force is organized is you have your element of, you know, five to six people. Those elements make up a flight which is, you know, eight, around 18 people, those flights make up a squadron, which is three flights, and it just keeps getting bigger and bigger. And I feel like everyone has that close group of friends, sometimes, <laughs> that they can talk to um, and really affect change within those friends. And then it just spreads out to their families, um, to their communities. And it's, it's not, it, I don't think it's as, an insurmountable task as people make it out to be. I feel like everyone can, everyone can affect the circles that they're in. Everyone can make those small changes in their daily lives. Well, Trey, um, I know that Adam has, has to work today, unfortunately. So we could easily talk much, much longer. And we want to just tell you that anytime you want to come back, uh, we'd love to have you. Absolutely. Love to have you back here. I suspected reading what you wrote, um, that you are going to be a very articulate and eloquent person and you are, and, and just want to just look ahead in October, you actually begin your official service in the air force. Could tell us just a little bit about that and your excitement and, and what you're looking forward to. Yeah. Until further notice, unless coronavirus is anything to say, um, I'll be going to Tucson to serve as a public affairs officer. Um, I've recently connected with an officer there already. Um, so I'm excited to talk to them. They're actually doing the job that I'm going to be doing while I'm there. Uh, but I'm very excited about um, my military you know, career ahead of me. Uh, it's something I've worked for for a very long time. College, I could tell stories about all the things I had to go through in college to get to commissioning, and I finally made it. And it's, I'm at a weird point in life where it's not, I'm done with school, but I haven't started my career yet, so I'm just kind of hanging in the balance, just bumming at my parents house like i am right now um 
but I'm very excited to see where that career takes me. Well, we're excited to follow your story and hear more about what you're doing. Uh, you're a great, great young man. We wish you well through and your family. We wish all of you the blessings. Uh, any, any final thought, Adam? Um, oh, sorry. Oh, right. and you can, <laughs> we're going to give you a final thought too. Do you want to go first? Adam, you go first. <laughs> yeah, I just, um, I'm still blown away that you guys have celebrated Sukkot that, uh, just <laughs> my day. So, um, you know, just, uh, remember to, to stay grounded and remember to own up to it. And you need to put action behind words. You know, I, I really thank you for this conversation, Trey. Um, you know, you allowed me to ask ignorant white questions and get a, a really good answer. So I, I really hope, um, you know, we can continue a conversation and check in with you and see how your career is going because uh, you got bright things ahead of you, man. And I'm, I'm really excited for you. Thanks, man. Yeah. All I wanted to say was, I didn't really get to say it earlier, um, but uh, racism can be very personal for a lot of people. Um, it can be very traumatic. Um, I was definitely traumatized by Ahmaud Arbery a few months ago, just running because I run often. I'm trying to, you know, exercise, get my skinny back. Um, and that was very traumatizing. Brianna Taylor was very traumatizing because that could have been my sister. Um, and George Floyd, I thought about my father. So there's an idea, a concept known as generational trauma. Um, for a lot of people in the black community, when they see someone, even just the same skin color, getting, you know, as tortured as George Floyd was, it's that identification. It's that could be me. That could be someone I know. That could be my father. Um, and that's not the same for every culture. Um, so when you're asking if somebody listens to this and they want to ask, you know, a black friend or a colleague about the situation, um, just try not to be traumatic about it because it's very, it can be very traumatizing to have seen the inhumane treatment that's gone on and it's been broadcasted to the world over the past few weeks. That, that's my only takeaway. I could go into so many more, but I appreciate you guys for having me on. I really do. It was a great time. Well, thank you so much, Trey. We really appreciate it. This has been another episode of the Veer Vulnerabilis Veer podcast. I'm Adam Glinsky. And I'm Albert Imperato. And I'm Trey Nelson. Thank you for listening. <laughs>